Welcome everyone to evening worship. Our call to worship is from Psalm 105, and I invite you to stand to hear and receive God's call to you to worship Him. This is God's Word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Would you please pray with me? Lord, as we end this Sabbath day, we pray that you would give us and show us the rest that only you provide through the gospel. Now we seek rest for our souls so that we can live for you. So God, would you give us that rest in your word this evening as we worship you? In the hymns that we sing, would you remind us of your great love for us? We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time of worship. We ask that you would again send your spirit tonight to lead us to open our eyes, to open our ears, and to open our hearts so that we can serve you and love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn together, which is 457, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Let's sing hymn 457. Amen. You may be seated. 
Our Old Testament reading this evening is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. And our hymn that we just sung leads us very well into this time of corporate confession of sin. And as you'll see in this passage as well, where we acknowledge that we as sinners are prone to wander. We are prone to wander from God, from his word, and he calls us back. He brings us back. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. I'll read this now. This is God's word. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make, known, make them known to your children and your children's children. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We are looking at this passage as in preparation for our prayer together and then our time of silent confession of sin. And we hear in the Old Testament these times in which Moses is giving the law of God to God's people. He is preaching it, teaching it, and he is saying, as we read, take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart. And as we sung, we are coming before God in humble repentance and faith. We're saying we are prone to leave behind your word. We are prone to forget the things that we have seen, and so we come before God humbly. We ask him to help us, to heal us, to forgive us. So if you would, you'll take your bulletin now and we'll read this corporate confession of sin together. Almighty God, who art rich in mercy to all those who call upon you, hear us as we come to thee, humbly confessing our sins and transgressions and imploring your mercy and forgiveness. We have broken your holy laws by our deeds and by our words, and by the sinful affections of our hearts. We confess before you our disobedience and ingratitude, our pride and willfulness, and all our failures and shortcomings towards you and toward our fellow men. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and of your great goodness grant that we may hereafter serve and please you in newness of life. Through the merit and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll have a time of silent confession of sin and a time for you to pray now. Let's continue to pray.
Lord, we come before you knowing what you have called us to do in your word, and yet also knowing that we have fallen far short of your commands, of your words, and so we come before you knowing that it isn't our obedience that justifies us before you. It's not our obedience to the law that makes you smile upon us. But God, it is your law which guides us, which is a light for us, and which is a way in which we know the way to go. And so, Lord, we confess when we have transgressed your law, when we have sinned against you in thought, word, or deed. And, Lord, we have done so this past week, even today, numerous times. But we know when we come before you, your grace is always greater than our sin, that you will always forgive those who come before you, confessing their sin, turning from their sin, all through faith in you, all through your Holy Spirit's power. So God, as we come before you, would you meet us, whether we have confessed sins this evening, whether we have brought our requests before you for the week ahead, for our family members who might be sick or recovering from surgery, whether it be for schoolwork that's causing us to worry and to be anxious, uh, whether it be sports that we are looking forward to but might be uh, worried about for one reason or another. God, there are so many places that you are sending us into, and we ask that you would meet us there, that we would show forth your glory in all these different areas in which you're sending us. So God, would you us from the inside out? Would you cause us to worship you now in freedom, knowing our sins are forgiven, that you love us, you've forgiven us, and you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wrote a assurance of pardon in here, and I looked it up, and it's not what I wanted to put in here. So um, I'm going to pronounce a biblical assurance of pardon now, um, which is all those who come to him by faith are forgiven. Surely, and we are grateful for that to God. Um, as we continue our worship service, we'll sing our next hymn and take up our evening offering. Our next hymn is hymn 146, Break Thou the Bread of Life. Let's sing hymn 146 as we take up our evening offering.
I invite you again to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Our evening sermons in January is a series called Questioning Jesus, and each of our passages for this month will have a question, a question that is aimed at Jesus, perhaps a question that is aimed at us next week. Um, tonight's question is, what's the most important commandment? Um, often we'll say to people, and maybe even to God, just tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it, and we'll all be happy. Or just tell me those things that I need, the minimum requirement for being a good follower of Jesus, and I'll do it, so that I can rest assured that God looks down on me in a kind way. You might have not asked those questions, but other people do. So this message this evening, we're going to see how Jesus will show you that to follow God, you actually need the love of God. To follow God, you need the love of God. And the love of God is what gives you a new affection for him and for others, for your neighbors. So let's read our passage. This is God's word, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, What commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let me pray for us briefly. Lord, as we consider your law, your commandments, would you show us your great grace for us and show us how Jesus has in fact fulfilled the law on our behalf and how that in fact empowers us to follow you. So reveal this to us through your word clearly this evening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Most people know when they hear this passage that Jesus taught this. That to love God and love your neighbor, it is a very common phrase, but in fact, Jesus is, historically speaking, if one of or if not the first person to combine these two commandments into one, love God and love your neighbor. But he taught it here and brought it up here because they misunderstood God's commandments back then, and we also misunderstand God's commandments now. 
We go wrong because we think this passage teaches us how to obey God versus actually obeying God from a place in our heart. We think what's most important is the way in which we obey God rather than the heart transformation. Jesus is actually teaching where obedience to God comes from, where obedience comes out of rather than what we do and how to do it. So we're going to look at two points. The first is how we misunderstand God's commandments, and the second is the only way to follow God's commandments. So the first, how we misunderstand God's commandments. If you've been on the internet in the last several years, specifically on YouTube or Facebook, um, you have seen countless videos offering advice on how to improve your life in whatever way the internet algorithms have deemed best for you. Whether it's workout exercises for muscle growth, how to feel good and live a long time, um, maybe it's videos about the carnivore diet. For me, for some reason, that comes up a lot. Um, maybe you've seen a video that's telling you how to make a cold water bath out of an old chest freezer. Probably not that, but for whatever reason, now I know how to do it. Um, it wasn't until... I saw these videos, and I've seen these videos, and that I've been immersed in them, that I started to understand the underlying message of our culture today, which is, if you have a problem, there is a solution. If you are not happy, there is a video for that. There is a technique. There is a diet. You have the power to fix your problems. And if you don't fix it, then it's your fault. You are responsible for following the rules that lead to happiness. People will often say, if you just follow this one rule, you will be fitter, happier, healthier, you'll sleep better, whatever it is. For a class I was taking, I had to read a book called The Power of Habit. It's a secular, non-Christian book about habits and how to change them. And we were reading this book because we're comparing how we understand people to change, how the world understands people, how they change, and how the Bible teaches how people change. In this book, there's a story about Tony Dungy. He is a Hall of Fame NFL coach for the Indianapolis Colts. He's also uh, known for his great faith in Christ. He's very public about that. He's written a book about that. His coaching strategy took several years to build, and he used what's now known as the golden rule of habit change, the golden rule. He wanted his players to stop thinking during the plays and just act on instinct because he believed if they just acted rather than thought during a play that they would actually play better. They would play from habit. Because we all have habits that are so automatic, we don't even think about them. For instance, driving your car to work or dropping your kids off at school. 
You might do this and not even remember doing it when you get home. It's happened to me. It might have happened to you. We do this. This happens because our habits are so ingrained in us. So Tony Dungy learned that you can't completely remove a player's bad habit. This is what he learned. You can't remove a player's bad playing habit, but you can change it. And that's the golden rule, they say. You can never truly remove a bad habit. That's, that's the golden rule. Um, a habit is something where you are cued to do something. Then there is the routine itself, the thing that you do. And then the reward at the end. So, for instance, if there's a donut on the counter, the cue is your hunger or your craving. The routine is eating it. And the reward is feeling happy or satisfied. Or maybe you feel sad. I don't know. But if you recognize the cues, they say, and provide the same reward, which is happiness, you can shift the routine and change the habit. So you don't get rid of everything. You don't get rid of the habit. You change the habit. And so the author says that the golden rule has influenced treatments from alcoholism, obesity, OCD, and hundreds of other behaviors. The author says, attempts to give up snacking, for instance, often fail unless there's a new routine to satisfy old cues and reward urges. A smoker usually can't quit unless she finds some activity to replace cigarettes when her nicotine craving is triggered. So in other words, if you're trying to lose weight, you understand that you need to eat less calories. But you can't get rid of the craving. You can't aim to get rid of your craving for snacks. Instead, you have to find something that you can eat that's less calories and maybe healthy for you and gives you the same reward. So enough about this habit-making. Tony Dungy applied these principles. He became one of the most successful coaches in history. He took his team to the playoffs 10 straight years. He was the first African-American coach to win a Super Bowl. And underneath all of this, for all of us, and the question that the power of habit can't answer is why? Why? Why are we doing anything in life? Why change our habits? What is the point of changing our habits? What are we after? What are we trying to obtain? And the power of habits, why, is simply so that you can be a better person in your own eyes a better person to yourself. We might ask the question, why follow the most important commandments of God? Why follow the law? Why are we obeying God's word? Why is the scribe in this passage close to the kingdom of God, yet not fully there? What doesn't he understand? In our passage, Jesus recites the Shema, which is the great commandment to love God with all of our being. It was kind of like the Apostles' Creed for Jewish people. They would recite it often. Jews used to believe that to love one's neighbor meant to love fellow Jews. So Jesus is the first, again, to combine these commandments and mark them as the preeminent commandments, the ones that everything else flow out of. Love God, love your neighbor. And so we ask, how? 
We know what's required, but we know that's not enough. The scribe says at the end of his response, loving God and neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he's starting to understand that God desires our affections. God desires our hearts in obedience as we serve him. Not fear, not obligation, not religious practices. God doesn't give us a manual on how to obey him. He has come to change our affections, the desires of our heart, what gives us reason and purpose in this life. And unless we desire God, we can't understand his commandments. We can't follow them. Unless we desire God himself, we can't understand and follow his commandments. Which brings us to the next point. The only way to follow God's commandments. The biblical truth is that you and I obey and follow rules and have habits that come from our hearts. Unless God changes our hearts, we'll follow God out of habit or because someone told us to or for whatever reason. We'll follow God so we can get what we're after, what our heart's affection is really after, whether it be comfort or happiness. Some people often will be a part of a church simply for the community rather than for Jesus himself. We follow rules so that we can get what we want. We treat God like a butler or like a genie in a bottle. And the love of the world is, in fact, what is driving our life in obedience rather than a genuine love for God. So if the greatest commandment is love God with all that you are, why is it so challenging? For some of us, it feels like a burden rather than a blessing to hear these commandments. And I think for some people, loving God means following the law. And if we break God's law or we see others living contrary to Scripture, we assume that they don't love God or don't even know God. But this is living as a slave to the law, not as a child of God. The affection of our heart, in this case, is self-acceptance. That in our holiness, we can stand before God and must bring others up to this standard. This is where someone named Thomas Chalmers uh, comes into play. He wrote a book in the 1800s, I'll say 1861. He wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he wrote based on several verses, but one of his key passages was 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so he goes on to argue that, he says, quote, the love of the world cannot be expunged, cannot be removed by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. So he's saying, is there something that can replace 
our love for the world. Maybe that something can remove our love of the world and replace it. He goes on to show us how we can be freed from the love of the world once and for all. He says, This love from God is not a duty one performs. It is a delight one prefers. It is an affection before it is a commitment. There's another author whose name is James K.A. Smith, and he says that our life and our habits ultimately flow out of our affection, or in his words, what we worship, either consciously or subconsciously. We all have liturgies of the heart, or as another pastor would say, we are idol factories. We are grasping for things to give us worth and affection and love, but we are not going to God for those things. So the love of God that Jesus describes is not a duty one performs. It is a delight. It is an affection. And this is why Thomas Chalmers thinks he uses this kind of odd example of sucking out sin from a beaker bottle. He might have been a scientist or something like that. He says you can't suck sinful pleasures out of the human heart with the pump of fear or the law if we do not put a better pleasure in their place. So if we won't put a better pleasure in our heart, then the law will only ever be feared and lead us to outward actions, outward behavior change, rather than what Jesus is after, heart change. In Matthew 13, verse 44, there's this great parable. And in that parable, or with that parable, Chalmers will go on to talk more about it. I'll read one verse from it. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then from his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. From his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So he reasons from this passage that until this man found this treasure, he was content with all that he had at the moment, the love of the world. And then something happened. He discovered a reality that awakened a new affection. A new affection that expelled his old affections for all the things that he thought he was content with. His enjoyment of all that he has loses its dominion, one author says, because of the expulsive power of a new affection. This author talking about Chalmers' book says, the expulsive power is evidence, evident in the words, from his joy. From his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The power at work to drive out the love of the world is from his joy. It's coming from somewhere. It's coming from a new joy. Joy is the new affection for this man. So now if we go back to our passage, verses 29 to 31, 
Each of the four commandments is prefaced by a Greek, two letters from the Greek, ek or ex, E-K, I can't remember the, the Greek letters, but X, we'll just say X for now. And this means that it comes from the source of, from the source of, not by the means of. Let me explain that. We'll read it again. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, sorry, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're commanded to love God not just with our whole heart, but from our whole heart. From our whole heart. In other words, we could read it again. Love God from your heart and from all of your soul and from all of your mind and from all of your strength. Again, it's not use all your strength for God. This is legalism. This is legalism. It's slavery to the law. It's love the Lord your God out of your heart. Out of your heart. You can't love God out of your heart unless his love is actually in your heart to begin with. Your old affections for the world, for yourself, for your family, for money, for safety, for happiness, they will rule you unless you put a better affection in its place. We all living in this world have a love for the world that often pushes out the love of God in our life. And so we need to be called back to the love of God. We need to grasp it again. What is the love of God? What is the gospel? What is the good news for you and for me this evening? First John chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought to, we also ought to love one another. This is our passage said in a, in, in a similar fashion. If God loved us first, and he loves us in spite of all of our sin and faults and brokenness, we also ought to love one another. If I can read one more quote from Chalmers, he said, We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God by faith. To try to obey God's law without faith is to work without the right tool of the right instrument. But faith worketh by love. And the way of expelling from the heart the love which breaks the law is to admit into its receptacles the love which fulfilleth the law. He's saying, in other words, in order for us to rid ourselves of the love of the world, which means ungodliness, those things that are counter to God, in order for us to rid ourselves of the love of the world, which is against God, we don't turn to the law. 
We don't give ourselves more of the law. We turn to the love which fulfills the law on our behalf. Jesus Christ himself. Jesus fulfills the great commandment of God. Love God with all your strength, mind, soul, heart, and your neighbor as yourself. He does this perfectly for you and for me. That's what it means to live through Christ, through his obedience. One author said, and my, I think it's Chalmers again, he said, retain, if you retain a single shred or fragment of legality with the gospel, and we raise, then we raise a topic of distrust between man and God. We take away the power of the gospel to melt and to conciliate. For this purpose, the freer it is, the better it is. The freer the gospel is, the better it is for you and me. Free salvation, the free gift of salvation received by faith alone, doesn't lead us to caring less about God's law. In fact, there's a new inclination, a new spirit that comes out of the love of God that has supplanted the older love of the world. Nothing but the love of Jesus will expel your love for ungodliness. And the free gift of salvation is that Jesus has completely fulfilled the law on your behalf. The scriptures say in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He lavishes you and me with grace. That's how we stand today. The free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only source for obedience and for joy for the Christian. His grace frees us to walk with him without the fear of judgment. He frees you to live for him, to love him, which then leads, of course, to loving others. The lavish love of God is offered to you again and offered to me again tonight, free of charge. And unless we receive this love, lest we receive Christ's love, you will never love him in return. And you will never love your neighbor. And so use what meager faith you have. Receive this good news again tonight. And your love of the world will stand no chance. Your hatred of others will stand no chance. Your lust for money or people will stand no chance. Whatever idol it is that we cling to will lose its power, not by obeying God's law, but by receiving his lavish love again and again. Please pray with me. God, we know, we hear again these two great commandments to love you with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know, God, that 
You sent your son, Jesus, to die in our place. We could not obey your law. And Jesus did that for us. He obeyed your law perfectly so that we can be seen by you as you see your son, Jesus, as righteous. So God, would you pour your lavish grace out on us this evening? Would you cause us to walk in freedom, freedom to know you more, to have an affection of joy so that we can search your scriptures for your will and your purpose for our lives and to tell others of the joy of your grace and love in our life. God, we thank you for what you're doing in our life. We thank you for this freedom. We pray that you would be with those who may not have this freedom yet, who might be troubled in their conscience. God, would you be gracious to them? Would you show them your mercy? And would you free them from the guilt that weighs so heavily? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. To close our service, we'll stand and sing hymn 535, which is, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Let's stand and sing hymn 535.
receive God's blessing as you go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.